Well, good morning. You know, this is an exciting week. I hope you're excited about it. We've already had an amazing time yesterday in orientation and, and prayer and, and training and just going to be an exciting week. I can feel it and I can know it because about everything that's gone wrong can go wrong before yesterday and now before this morning in my life. That's a sign. It always is. Actually, more than you think. Um, no, it's exciting to be here. And uh, what we're asking you to do is quite provocative because we're asking you to leave your jobs this week. We're asking you to leave your ordinary work in life. We're asking you to walk away from it for a while so that you can do kingdom work. Now, I just opened up a hornet's nest about this big, if you're listening carefully. I mean, am I... Are we making a distinction between what people describe as sacred and secular? Is that right? Are you, are you secular when you go to work every day? What is this kingdom that we're talking about? What is its nature? Such that as we've heard in this passage, the disciples would immediately, the emphasis on immediately, leave their livelihood and follow after Christ in order to do kingdom work. It's a question that really gets at the very essence of what the meaning of life is. Told you it was getting bigger and bigger as we unwrap this thing. What is life exactly for a Christian as we anticipate the return of Christ or our death and return to him in our spirit awaiting that bodily return later? What is life? What is it that we do and what is our calling And so I want us to think about this ultimate goal of this week, but more even than that, what is the ultimate goal of the Christian's life? The kingdom come on earth as it is in heaven. We hear that language in Matthew. We begin to discover that there's this kingdom of God, and it is distinguished from the kingdoms of this world. And this kingdom of God is central everything Christ is and came to do from heaven to earth. So I want us to pray as we come to this passage and ask God's blessings to speak to our hearts as we think about this thing we describe as the kingdom of God. Let's pray. Lord, we do thank you for these great songs, celebrations, that we can be honest that we can come to you just as we are, as the old song says. We thank you that you receive us. As we confess our sins, you absolve us of our sins. We thank you, Lord, that this is your kingdom. And therefore, Lord, we, we are inclined to hear you by the very fact that you've shown yourself to be loving and caring and a kind of God that would never ask us of anything of us that would not be for that that story of being restored to you and restored even to life and to ourselves as those made in the image of God. So teach us, Lord, about your kingdom, we pray in Christ's name. Amen. Well, this whole focus of chapter uh, uh, 4 is really centered on verse 17. Let me read it again. From from that time, no, that already tells you that what's happened preceding it is intended to help us understand something that's happening now. 
from that time, given what's just happened, Jesus began to preach saying, repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. Now, first of all, just notice uh, a little bit about this word, the kingdom of heaven, or words. Notice especially the centrality of the kingdom of God in creation, all through since even creation. What we'll see is that the idea of heaven is reference to the sphere of God's reign. In other words, throughout Scripture, you're going to see, even beginning in, in Genesis 1, the way in which God is in session, ruling in heaven, such that the whole earth is created to coronate him over and over in their hearts and in their lives as King of kings and Lord of lords. Genesis is presented to us as a prologue to the kingdom. The great title, Kingdom Prologue, that Old Testament scholar Meredith Klein gave to his theology of Genesis. A kingdom prologue. Now, what was happening there in Genesis? You see this amazing poetic parade of kings and kingdoms all consummating themselves ultimately to a king who has no part of a kingdom because he's the king of kings His kingdom is the kingdom of all kingdoms. You get that? The whole earth is his kingdom. Even as the whole earth consists of smaller kingdoms and kings. That's how creation is presented to you in the seven days of creation. And so we see that that Adam and Eve are given this amazing vestment of of kingdom activity. They have this sort of, and I'm going to use some words here, a cultic and cultural mandate. All of which, notice, are the kingdom of God. Multiply, this command to expand the kingdom of God from Eden to consume the whole earth in, under its polity of Christ as king. You hear the word to subdue or to rule, bringing all the world in subjection to God and his reign. You also hear of this Sabbath rest. Prior here to any instructions about a unique temple with sacrifices, etc. That's not going to happen until chapter 3 after the fall. A Sabbath rest, a cultic worship of of the whole kings, all the kings being drawn together from all the kingdoms, coming together to coronate him on Sabbath. Not a day of rest as in sleep, by the way. It's the day of representing the session of God, the, the rule of God, where there's a coronation and consummation and and of all of our lives to him. Everything is about kingdom. In creation story. There's this story of Eden, carefully described as a sanctuary of God. There's this story of of a land, carefully described as God's land. And there's a polity, a government. It's instituted under male and female, the Imago Dei, 
both priestly and royal in their definition and description as they are given this kingdom work to do. Picking up, though, we have the fall. The kingdoms are rent asunder from God. We now have kings who have divorced themselves from the king of kings. Humanity who has has pulled away. And now the kingdom of God, in some sense, can be pitted against the kingdom of man. Those kingdoms under the rule of humanity versus of God. This kingdom of God now is representing the message to repent. In other words, before it's just cultivate, multiply, but now there is a priestly function that is, that is moved towards the sacrificial idea of an atonement for sin in chapter 3, where Adam and Eve repent, where they confess Eve to be the mother of life that is of God and the new Redeemer who would come out of her womb eventually. We see the sacrifice of clothing them with the sacrificed uh, vestments, if you will, of a sacrificial lamb or animal. Things have happened now in chapter 3 and following. We have a kind of kingdom here that, that is sacred, and there is a kind of kingdom here that is not sacred, but still under the kingdom of God. And Cain, and and the polity that was instituted under Cain, expelled from the salvific and saving kingdom of God, but all the same protected and cared for by God in a common grace versus maybe special or saving grace way. Now, I've said stuff that that needs essays and, and lectures and books and everything else, but I'm just trying to get you into the mood of just how central it was that Jesus came upon the scene saying, repent, turn away from your human rule kingdoms, and preaching the kingdom of God, another kingdom. Daniel envisions the promise that was given to Adam and Eve out of her womb, even as he sees a vision, we heard it read today, of the coming then of this great king, Messiah, who would bring with him the restoration of the whole earth to God under his polity and kingdom. I saw in the night a vision, he says, and behold, with the clouds of heaven, there came one like the son of man, born of a woman, you could see. And he came to the ancient of days, that God who was enthroned above the heavens and was presented before him, and to him was given all dominion, kingdom, and glory, that all people's nations and language should serve him. This is just the creation mandate restored. Multiply, subdue. His dominion is an everlasting dominion which shall not pass away, then this kingdom one that shall not be destroyed. The centrality of the kingdom of God is throughout redemptive history, in other words. This has been a quick, 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 quick review. But then we turn to Matthew. 
And it is central to Matthew's gospel. 33 times the kingdom of heaven is used. It intro- he introduces Christ, a unique genealogy of kings, in chapter 1. As to suggest that he is, what? That great king of kings. The central theme of John the Baptist's ministry, we're told in chapter 3, right before chapter 4, where it is the ministry of John that he's being described as preaching, quote, repent, for the kingdom of God is at hand. Jesus has been born. Jesus is about to be baptized, which is to submit under even the law of God for humanity to repent. Jesus, on behalf of humanity, is to repent. And he will then baptize with fire and spirit, judgment and salvation. It's the central theme in Christ's ministry, as we've seen in chapter 17, that then will spill out over and over and over this phrase, kingdom of heaven. We see it in the Beatitudes, blessed, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. On the Sermon of the Mount, great in the kingdom of heaven, in the parables, to you it has been given the secrets of the kingdom of heaven, of healings and miracles. Jesus went throughout Galilee, teaching in their synagogues, proclaiming the good news of the kingdom of heaven, curing every disease and every sickness among the peoples. I think Matthew wants us to know that Jesus is all about the kingdom of heaven. It then spills over into the apostolic ministry as well. In Acts chapter 8, their ministry is summarized. And when they believed Philip as he preached good news about the kingdom of God and the name of Jesus Christ, they were baptized, both men and women. In Colossians, Jesus is described then as the great king that has delivered us from the domain of darkness and transformed us into the kingdom of his beloved son in light. Did you notice that right before verse 17, it's a description of of Christ as the light of the world? And Paul also describes, even in Ephesians, Jesus in this kingly way. And what is the immeasurable greatnesses of his power towards us who believe? According to the working of his great might that he worked in Christ when he raised him from the dead and sealed him at the right hand in the heavenly places. There it is again, a kingdom come from heaven far above all rule and authority and power and dominion and above every name that is named, not only in this age, but also in the age to come. What is this kingdom of heaven? Well, let me tell you a few other things briefly. Notice the grammar, which you can't notice in the English, but notice the grammar in verse 17. It's this little genitive, we call it. A genitive of source, Purpose, sphere, perhaps even all three. It's ordinarily the case that you typically want to choose one, but in the context here, it seems pretty clear all three. That is, that when the text says that the kingdom of heaven is at hand in chapter 3, in chapter 4, etc., we would not in the first place think of this spatial or static activity which is descended from heaven like this little cookie cutter box. (laughs) But rather of the divine kingly rule exerting itself into time and space. It is spatially in Christ's presence. But it's also the source from heaven. Again, heaven not being, uh, think of heaven as, as a description of that 
non-soil, unsoiled, pure, eternal first thing of, of, of the rule of God. All of the heavens, all of the earth, in a sense, has been formed and is meant to image heaven that is the rule of God, the order of God, the life of God. And so the, the kingdom of heaven is the source from heaven. Its purpose is heavenly. Its sphere is transformed onto earth to make earth heaven. And thus the prayer, as it is in heaven, that he will teach his apostles soon thereafter. Notice also this little verb that's in the perfect form. And what that means is that it's dynamic. This perfect tense expresses perfection of action, a present state which has resulted from a past action and is continuing into the future. It's, it's I mean, the writer cannot use language more powerfully. And Jesus could not have said it more powerfully as to the dynamic nature of this kingdom of God, all-inclusive, past, present, future, all-inclusive, spiritual and physical, all-inclusive, sphere, all-inclusive. It's meant to be the very purpose of our life in everything we do. To pray a, quote, kingdom prayer is thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven, you see. It's dynamic. The kingdom of God is the redemptive reign of God. Now, this is important. Did you notice every time Peter, I mean, uh, John and, and Jesus and later the disciples, it's repent and the kingdom of God. See, again, since the fall, the kingdom of God that is meant to be what it was before the fall and yet expanded to include all the whole earth as the Eden kingdom of God, is now a kingdom in opposition to those kingdoms under the rule of a rebellious humanity. There is a sense in which we could say sacred and secular, but I don't like that dichotomy. It would be rather to say now saved and unsaved or faith and unfaith or disbelief or unbelief. It's not that God is not active in his providence in this world. But this kingdom of God is that unique and salvific sphere of God. Now, when we get to heaven, it won't be that way. Because the whole... When I say heaven, which we know is on earth, so when I say up, that is such a bad way to talk about heaven, by the way. It's going to be down, here. But when heaven is earth, and earth is heaven, as we see in the beatific vision of Revelations, the, the heavens coming down to earth with Christ. That's the description, if you go back to it. The great polity, the city of God. By city, it doesn't mean urban, it doesn't mean suburban. It means the rule of God, the polity of God that comes down upon earth with Christ, this great Jerusalem. And it's said that there is no need anymore of temples. For the whole earth is now a cultic worship site, a sanctuary of God. 
I think the best way to describe, rather, what we're talking about between the kingdom of heaven is that here what we see is it's this dynamic, powerful reign of Christ wherein there is a special grace unique to it that enables one to be saved and restored to God and to that great heavenly kingdom on earth that was our destiny at creation. It's a special grace, salvific grace, such that it requires this this little advert, you know, repent command. Turn away from what's, what you're looking to save you now if it's not God. Turn away from those idols. Turn away from that rebellious rule and turn to God and you will be saved. That's what is meant by the kingdom of heaven. A special grace kind of dynamic presence of God to establish his rule again, a rule which we know is by its very nature a rule of love and grace and mercy and justice and righteousness. Everything that we crave for our earth. And so to participate in this kingdom activity, this special grace kingdom activity is to participate in the very activity of God saving the earth and all of humanity and bringing it back to himself Ritterball says this, that future and present aspects of the kingdom must never be separated. In this preaching, the element of fulfillment is no less striking and essential than that of expectation. It says the kingdom of God is at hand. It's come, even as there is a futuristic nature to it, it's coming. For the future and the present are indissolubly connected in the preaching of Christ. The one is the necessary complement of the other. The prophecy about the future can only be rightly viewed then from the standpoint of the Christological present. Christ has come. But then, of course, that raises the question, he has also left. Has the kingdom of God left us then? What is kingdom work now? It was, as we've seen, and we'll go back to it in a minute, leave your nets and follow after Christ. Now, we can't follow him to heaven, Jesus says at this present time. He's not going to let us go up to heaven. He's going to come back down to us and create what? By the Holy Spirit, these many epicimers, these myriads, he says, of, of houses. What is he talking about in John? Well, you get the same thing in Matthew. Says it a little differently, though. Jesus will, in chapter 16, describe his ascent into heaven as then leaving behind by the Holy Spirit these kingdom epicenters, these polities and cultic activities and people acting both jointly and severally in manners that extend now the kingdom of Christ among the nations in all of their languages and all at the same time, rather than at one time in the incarnate ministry of Christ. That on earth as it is in heaven, this church, he says, I tell you, you are Peter, and on this rock I will build my church, and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. 
I will give you the keys of the kingdom of heaven. This one who is to build the church, the church being given then, and we all know what a key is. A key is what unlocks and locks. Then he goes on to explain this in classic governing language that would have been used often. If you are bound, you're taken under the reign, the control of Caesar in a disciplinary way. If you're loosed, you are set free. That is to live without discipline. It goes to say it that way. I give you the keys to the kingdom of heaven, and whenever you bind on earth, I mean, how can you not describe the church as now the epicenter? Whatever you bind on earth is bound in heaven. Do you see this heaven and earth thing going again? It's everywhere. You will not, you're not going to believe it when you start reading your Bible after a sermon like this. God, it's everywhere. It's the prayer. It's the hope. It's everything. Heaven to earth. And he says, and earth shall be bound in heaven, and whatever you loose on earth shall be loosed in heaven. From heaven, the church is now a divine institution, owing its origin not to itself. This isn't a human-made institution like other kingdoms can be in defiance of God. It is God's little Eden on earth, multiplied among the nations to fulfill the commission given to Adam. There is a lot going on here. This kingdom of God, what's happening now, lies. It's CPC in every church that is a gospel-believing church. It's incredible. Stop and think. How we are all associated to God, uh, together, not in consequence of some human polity and arrangement, some organization that we dreamt up. Every iota of our government and worship and, and, and what we do, all of it determined by the word of God given to us by Christ and Holy Scripture, not just by good inference, but by good and necessary inference. Really. I would give anybody, I dare you, come at me. If we do it, it's by good and necessary inference in Scripture, at least in so far as what we do elementally. Now, we may do it in different flesh and cultural ways, but what we do under our government, what, where we bind conscience, morally, I'm saying, it must come from divine source of heaven. That's the point that he's making. And so this authority is given unto the church. I will give you the keys of the kingdom of heaven. The activity of the church is the activity of Christ in proxy. Binding and loosing. Now what does it mean to do kingdom work? Once it meant follow after me and and this little band of disciples, this band of brothers and sisters, now it means leave your nets and serve the church. Ooh, getting uncomfortable in here. Getting real uncomfortable. I know you're waiting. It's going to come. But before we get there, let's look at the temptation. It's interesting, isn't it, that this whole session, this whole thing is described uh, very neatly and carefully at this, after this, you know, language that I used earlier, following the temptation of Christ, when Jesus was led, notice, up by the Spirit, the Lord led him to that place in the wilderness to be, purpose clause, to be tempted by the devil. Wow. Never thought of 
temptation kind of like that. I mean, isn't that kind of weird that Jesus or God would lead us to be tempted? Now, our, our theological past and our tradition and many other traditions have wrestled with that. Is God, therefore, the source of evil? No. Does God tempt anyone? No. But in his providence, he leads us to where we might be tempted. Okay, it's a, just don't go there right now, please. I know. If you're like me, I'm racking it now, and I'm lost for the rest of the season thinking through that. But there's a sense in the mystery of this divinity, humanity, interaction, where God is always sovereign, always directing, even such that our temptations, while not derived from God, but here Satan, are temptations that God allows, but better, even ordains. That's why Paul can say in Corinthians that no temptation is overtaking you, but that which is common to man, and with every temptation God has provided a way of escape. He wasn't ordaining Jesus to fall. He was ordaining him to be tested. Boy, that's another big can of worms, but it's an exciting one. You know, that is an amazingly common theme through the Old and New Testament, the idea of Israel and the church being tested as ordained by God. What do we mean by this test? Is this some kind of a grade thing? That's what most of us are thinking when we use the word test. This sort of a grade thing that, well, God's going to, and, and if we pass, we get salvation, and if we fall, we don't get salvation. Nope. That's not what's going on here. Think of it rather as a discipline or, or as almost a training event. But perhaps more than that, it's, a, it's an event that's meant by God, even in its temptation, to refine us, as the Scripture is going to describe, a testing of refinement, of, of focusing us on what is our mission and what it's not, on who we're to be and what we're not to be. And so as you get to this passage... You ask the question, is this a common temptation? In other words, do we see Jesus and what he's being led to do by the Spirit by going up into the mountains? Is that now immediately, should we turn from that and say, we all go to our wildernesses, we all have our wildernesses, or is this something unique to Christ? Now, some of you have been around the camp will know that some will say it's unique. Some will say it's common. There's a lot of either-orism out there. I'm going to say both hands. But you've got to make the distinction. Let me explain. If you look at this situation, there's clearly a unique intentionality. The Spirit led him. A person, a divine human person at that, but him, Jesus. This is unique to Jesus. In order to be tempted, the very spirit which just ascended on Jesus, coronating him as the Messiah King, has equipped him to be the Messiah King and is now leading him to a testing. It's this unique occasion, a 40-day fast. It's a unique encounter. The devil speaks audibly. We know that there's, a, there's an epicenter kind of activity going on here in spiritual terms. There's this kind of uh, a great battle that's taking place between the devil and the Messiah. A unique use of a power. If you are the son of God, notice that. 
Command these stones to become loaves of bread. (laughs) What does that acknowledge? The, The devil knows the power of this man. See, he's not saying, I tempt you to have power and ask God for it. He's saying, you got it. Now abuse it for yourself. Make it a rebellious kingdom. Everything in this temptation has symbolic value related to the fall of Adam and Eve. In other words, we might be getting a little bit of the inside scoop of the kind of things that the devil spoke to Adam. What was it? that led to the fall of our first Adam, our first king. A unique use of power, a unique concession. The devil concedes that Jesus is God's son. I don't know, but when the devil tempts me, he doesn't come with that one. Well, not in the sense that it's used here as a messianic divine son. A unique concession. A unique offer, the The devil offers the wealth of all the kingdoms of the world. Again, we're told the devil took him to the very high mountain and showed him all the kingdoms of the world. Now, this is about kingdoms, you see? That wasn't accidental. He's being tested as the king of kings who has come, and we'll see right after this, to preach what? Repent. That is, repent of these things even that I was called to repent of, to turn away from, in other words. Turn away. The devil offers the wealth of the nations, a unique lack of subtlety. It's not an angel of light. It's not someone wearing sheep's clothing. I mean, we always say that's not how the devil comes to you and I, but here he comes basically with horns, okay? I'm I'm saying metaphorically, of course. But he he really is. He's, He's not disguising himself clear who he is. He's not pretending to be someone else. It's all unique. Note that the two beginning with the same concession, the third clearly implies it, since you are the Son of God. Note that Jesus' reply to him is to affirm his humanness as well as divinity because he says, man shall not be tempted, but tempt the Lord thy God. You know, this is really cool because Matthew here is going out of his way to say to us on the one hand, What's happening with Jesus is very, very unique. And he does it in a way to present him as the second Adam entering into a second probation. Why would he do that? James Henley Thornwell reminds us here in his sermon about this passage, and he says, Christ tempted as the second Adam. Your hottest Voss, the probation of Jesus. What are they getting at in these sermons, classic sermons about this text? As a second Adam, you see, he's going to do a redo, do a redo. He's going to do a redo of the first Adam. He's going to enter into the temptation of the first Adam, the son of Adam, the son of God, Jesus, full of the Holy Spirit. Remember how Matthew started the book of Matthew? Starts with the son of Adam, returning from the Jordan and was led by the spirit of the wilderness. Point, his being tempted here was not merely as like any one of us. It's the same way, though, that when Christ says, those who follow after me must take up his cross. You see the both and there. No, Jesus is not inviting you to the same cross 
that he suffered. His was a cross of representational substitution for all of humanity to make atonement for our sins. He was the divine human man who alone went to the cross of judgment having nothing in his life to be judged as guilty. He is one being tempted as one who is being perfect and who sustains all temptations. And yet, in the mystery of this incredible grace of God, is doing so as a man, as to satisfy the probationary test that was given to humanity. Are you following this? It's thick, I know. But it's great, powerful stuff. And so there's something very, very unique about this tempting. And yet, again, we believe that that we are called, as it will be shown, to follow after Christ, to take up our cross. Part of that is going to be to be tempted. That is to say, when you do kingdom work, you enter into the cosmic battle yourself. It's an interesting pattern you see in redemptive history. You know, oftentimes we think of Scripture as just filled with miracles. And I hear people say all the time, you know, man, I just wish I lived back then. I might, it might be a lot easier to believe in God, you know, because I can see. You know, there were thousands of years between those miracles. You'd have relative silence. The, picture, the Scripture is not a chronological, it is a chronological redemptive history in some ways, but, but it's not telling you all of history. It's, it's picking up at these great epochal moments where there is a great spiritual moment of, of, of dynamic kingdom building, such as the moment of the flood, the moment of the exodus, the moment you see and you go through that. And in these things, you see this pattern, similar to what we call the S pattern, but this idea of, of this pattern of temptation, testing. Now, Israel is over and over, as quoted by Christ, exhorted, don't ever test God. That is, to assert ourselves as his rival, as his rival king. That's what Adam did. I can test God. I can discern right and evil and therefore be in that adversarial or competitive, if you will, relationship. So you don't test God, but all through the scriptures, Israel is tested by God. All through it. Exodus 16 Behold, I'm about to rain bread from heaven for you, and the people shall go out and gather a day, portion every day, that I may test them, whether they will walk according to the law or not. Evidently, they were tempted to hoard. And some failed the test. And off it goes. Exodus 20, Deuteronomy 8, Judges 2, Judges 3, blah, 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 blah. It goes, that you might be tested phrase. It even shows up in revelations as a warning. I know your works to Smyrna, your toil and your patient endurance and how you cannot bear with those who are evil, but I have tested those who call themselves apostles and are not and found them to be false. What is this test? Again, again, not so much assessing you as to get a grade as though it is an assessment of sorts. Rather, it's a trial. All of life is really a trial a preparation requiring perseverance of faith, the life, but they can be moments of severe testing, 
Paul will later describe in Corinthians how these textings can, can actually lead to, to a life of great ministry. That bones that are broken and repaired can then repair the bones of others. For this is why I wrote that I might test you and know whether you are obedient in everything, 2 Corinthians 2.9. For in a severe test of affliction, we're told, their abundance of joy and their extreme poverty have overflowed in a wealth of generosity on their behalf. That's a great example of a context where God sent a great testing upon his people who are naming themselves Christians, Christ followers. The church, throughout Scripture, throughout the great hymns of Christendom, we have this church militant, tested as ordained by God so that the church could be refined and purified as by fire. That our witness would become hot gold. James says, blessed is one who endures temptation. That word again can be translated testing. Such a one has stood the test and will receive the crown of life that the Lord has promised to him. Okay, so this test. Yes. Christ's test was unique as the Messiah, the second Adam, in order to make atonement for our sins, even as he was called to be the King of kings and Lord of lords. Temptations, as you know, that are in type, perhaps temptations we will experience as well, but not in substance. We will not experience the substance of his test. Bread temptation to take things in our own hands. Just take into your starving. Don't rely on God. Rely on yourself. Would that person leave a net in the sea, you think? I mean, you know, you, you couldn't, you, you can't, I don't think fish stores very well outside of refrigeration or even freezer. I mean, it's not like they had a nice abundance over here of fish stacked up that could be there for the winter months. Leave your nests means leave your food for today. And every day you leave it and rely on God. He calls the disciples to do that. A temptation to take things in your own hands for your daily life. Oh, I, not relevant to us, I know. We, we would never be tempted like that. A temple temptation to throw things presumptuously upon God's hands. That is to save ourselves by our own self-righteousness. To prove ourselves, to justify ourselves. And then there's this great kingdom temptation to transfer our loyalty into things other than God and using Scripture to rationalize. And of course, we see something in the temptation, the very manner in which Christ was the perfect humanity. Because with every temptation, he relied not on his rationalizations, not on his human wisdom. He didn't consult the scribes and the Pharisees and the scholastics and the scholars and the sages of this world. He relied on the word of God, his only rule of faith and practice. That's a testing. And all of this testing precedes a great, great, dynamic coming of the kingdom of God into the midst of Galilee. 
And there is a pattern like that. Whether it's through Moses preceding a great temptation, I mean, a temptation preceding a great salvation event, to even, I think, in type, not in substance. I keep making that distinction. Type, but not in substance. We're not messiahs. We don't have the messiah complex. But in type, not in substance, we are called to follow after him. And notice exactly that's what happens right after this. This, going to the center of Matthew 17, and then the call of the disciples, verses 16 through, uh, what is it, uh, 22. While walking by the Sea of Galilee, he saw two brothers. Simon goes through it all, and he says, Follow me, and I will make you fishers of men. And immediately they left their nets and followed him. Immediately. It's a call from Kim and Grace. Remember, what we've, we've already defined all this, so I'm not going to go back to it. It's a call from the, the common grace of God's kingdom activity, because God is king over all things, remember, to now this redemptive, salvific work of salvation. It's a calling as, well, I don't like that language. of You could use sacred, if you mean by sacred, salvific, but I, I think the sacred secular, because I don't think we can ever think of it as versus secular. Not in the sense of common grace and special grace. Again, it's a redemptive grace and a common grace. But here's the key. Common grace, by its very title and name, is a grace for all people of all faiths and none, and it is not salvific. It restrains evil, it's remedial, All through the scripture, it's a very powerful work of God in preserving this earth and even enabling this earth and all the peoples of this earth by this common grace to be a fertile soil for the salvation of this earth and peoples. It's it's important, very important. But when it's detached, when it becomes its own thing, Careerism, let's say. It becomes secular. It becomes a kingdom of man in the other sense. A kingdom that rivals the kingdom of Christ. There's a reason why in Genesis we are to hold a Sabbath. There's a reason why there are all sorts of institutions and and callings for all people of faith to serve the church. Because like the Sabbath, we need to be tested. Because, you know, when they left that net, they suffered. When you leave the net on a Sabbath day and say, I declare this is the Lord's day, I will devote myself especially to the work of special and the activity of that special grace of worshiping and praying, of of, of, being, of repenting and, and believing and all that we do and worship, etc. And, and all of that. It's a day to remember that your career won't save this planet. Because it's a kingdom from heaven that can only save this present. It's the kingdom of God. It's the kingdom that only God, by his supernatural intervention into the life of your colleague and friend and family and neighborhood, 
can accomplish. We must be born again. We must be baptized by the Spirit, not of the water alone. If so, we could baptize you with water and you'd be saved. No, the water's only a sign. When accompanied by the Holy Spirit, can regenerate and save you by faith. And so Jesus told the disciples later on, if anyone would follow after me, let him deny himself. Yes, deny himself. Take up that cross. Yes, enter into temptations, all manners of temptations and trials, and follow me. For whoever would save his own life as he was tempted to do in the wilderness, and as we will be tempted to do every time we're called upon to enter into special grace activity, he will lose it. Because what would be tempting us away can't save us. Only the gospel can. For what will it profit a man if he gains the whole world? You can hear it. I mean, it's almost like you're just thinking about these guys out there in that boat. And everything must be going, man, I can't leave this job. Man. It's gonna, it, I can't do this. I mean, you don't understand, man. Fish, fish is hard, and they don't come very often. i got to work it hard. Oh, have they lost sight, haven't they? Isn't God the provider of all things good? And so I, 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 I know, I feel the tension a little bit here because we've kind of, you know, we're, we're a little bit more sophisticated than this, aren't we, Pastor? I mean, we, we all know, you know, there's no sacred and secular. We know that God and all work is, is God's work. Yes, we do know that. But we need to be a little more refined. This world needs the kingdom of heaven. A kingdom that is defined by salvific activity of the Holy Spirit, wherein people are called to repent and be saved. So that therefore... When we forfeit something in this life, when we forfeit a buck, when we forfeit a prestige, when we forfeit whatever it is that we must do, when we ask our kids to forfeit a game, we ask them to be tested, to enter into the kingdom of God that they might be refined and purified and tested so as to repent of the reliance of a sporting event to find their worth. And salvation. Tempt them, parents, as under the ordination of God. Tempt them, church, those who are adults who go to work every day. Tempt them to take some time off when it might even hurt. That's what call is. It is a call, some call it to a vow for a moment of poverty. Some would take it as a lifelong call. Some will take it as they need and as the church needs, etc. But it's, there is the call to follow after Christ, to enter into his temptation of type, not of substance. And so I want to encourage you, and this isn't a sermon for this week. You know I would not reduce it to that. But I would encourage you to welcome God's calling us to temptation, calling us into that wilderness, a wilderness that will probably look like that sphere of activity that you engage where you are tempted to rely on yourself, 
where you're, you're tempted to restore your image before God in all humanity, where you are tempted to discern for yourself right and wrong. And when God calls you, maybe through a cafe leader, can you help me? Because you know whenever you help the cafe leader to make a place hospitable to the nations to come, the courtyard of the nations, if you will, in the temple place of God's presence, you are now partaking of the epicenter of the kingdom of heaven. And I mean this. We said it a lot in MA, Mission Anabano, but all through Scripture, it's the church that is the evangelist of God. It's not Preston or Kevin or Mike or anyone else. Chip. It's the church acting together. The corporate body of Christ that is the the evangelist of God, the one who proclaims from all of its activities, all the mercies, all the holistic things we do to restore people, but in the name of Christ we cure. In the name of Christ we heal. In the name of Christ we proclaim and teach and instruct. And that makes this the kingdom of heaven. Everything you do, I pray, as we heard yesterday, that a neighbor will peek out the window and see this gang wearing this weird green shirt with Impact New Haven all over it and little circles on the back and going, wow, who are these people? I want them to come to me. And then they later on, because they're too shy to come out and talk at the moment, go to their neighbor and say, what was going on? Well, that's my church. But no, what you can say, that was Jesus coming to me in my church, through my church. I needed a boost. I needed a little bump. I needed to see Jesus in my life, and they came and they showed it to me by cleaning up my, my bushes. Really? Yeah, we got a great church. Because Jesus is there, and we don't say that presumption. There are a lot of good churches, but Jesus is there. and You know, it's really real, and he, he sets us free from fear of condemnation and fear. He sets us free from this onerous, arduous, dutiful life of trying to save myself and provide for myself and in worlds like Egypt who make us daily to make more and more and more stones with less and less and less time and resources. And we just bite it and walk it and dutiful do it. Please, listen to this, this proclamation. Repent wherever you are whatever you're relying on, repent, turn away from it. Turn away from it. Accept the call to be tested, to turn away from that dream of a weekend at the lake, to turn away from that dream of a, of a little more money, what you could do with it. Turn away. Christ begs of you to turn away. Be tempted. Quote the Scripture. And find salvation that way, for there is no other way.